0: Episode 91 of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to give birth to twins. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, I have a special guest co-host because Ambie is on maternity leave. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, like Ship Shape and Doctor Who Time of the Daleks. Then, we're discussing games we've played so much that we've practically lost count, and why those games keep finding their way back to our table. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word Monopoly. And now, here are your hosts, Crystal. And from the Foot the Table podcast, moderator Chris. Hi, everybody. Woo! Before we hop into the main episode, one quick announcement that I think you all might be aware of by this point, or at least you may have assumed, but that is that Ambi has given birth to her twin boys, Kevin and Roy. They have safely entered the world. As of the time of this recording, everyone is healthy and doing great. But this episode is being recorded in advance, so to speak. So they are actually a little bit older now, hopefully, and going everywhere or nowhere since they're infants. But everybody, please uh, send Ambie and Toby congratulations on the birth of their sons. In other news... Abby's not here today, but somebody what? else is. What? Who Who could that be?
1: I don't know. You should tell me because I'm <laughs> sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to find out.
0: Uh, in case you all are not familiar with that voice, uh, I have a very special guest host here with me today who you heard at the end of the intro there. It is moderator Chris from Hi. formerly of Flip the Table. <laughs> Hi, Blitzketeers. It is so wonderful to have you joining me today, Chris. How are you doing?
1: I'm fantastic. It is an honor to finally get to visit this program. I've been a fan since episode one, and uh, and it's a dream. So thank you so much for, for having me on.
0: It is my pleasure, and I've mentioned this in past episodes, but I, I will mention it again in case the Blitzketeers don't remember, that you were one of the inspirational people who want got me to want to become a podcaster. And when I reached out to you prior to us starting Board Game Blitz and asked for advice, you were so kind and so generous and so helpful. Um, and you have supported the show since before it even started. And we are still so appreciative of that. You guys have sent us messages for our anniversary shows and other things like that. And uh, I've gotten to contribute. I've contri- written a couple of different things for um, Battles of Wits for Flip the Table back when it was still yes. Uh, I was a guest on Flip Flory's show, so I think our our shows are definitely intertwined to a point where we could never untwine them at this point.
1: Absolutely. We're one big, happy podcast family, right?
0: Absolutely. There is room in board game land for everyone, so to speak.
1: Especially if one of them quits, which is... uh... Really helpful, that's, too.
0: That's definitely helpful. All right, Chris. Well, we will hop into the thematic segment here in a minute, but I would like to hear about a game that you've been playing recently.
1: Yes, it happened to time out uh, that last Thursday I got to play Doctor Who Time of the Daleks by Gale Force 9, uh, and I played it with all of the expansions that have been released to date, uh, with the exception of Doctors 3, 8, and now 13, they just announced uh, today, will be part of that expansion.
0: That's really exciting. So how many of the doctors are included in the expansions in base game now? Are there, are, they, are there missing any others?
1: Oh, quick math. So So the last three are coming out, and there's 13, 13 minus three. so 10. 10 are
0: currently and, out already.
1: And, and then like a half a doctor with uh, the war doctor, but I don't know if that'll ever come out. but uh, so yeah, I believe 10 doctors, four in the base game, and then two, four, six, ten. 10. Yes. Very cool. So we got to play with all of those. I picked up Time of the Doctor shortly after it came out, uh, and I played it a few times, and I was I was excited about it, and I liked it, but there wasn't a ton of variety in the base game. And so when the expansions finally got released, we know that Gale Force 9 likes to take their time.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. I, as, as somebody who is a fan of Star Trek Ascendancy, I am intimately aware with their release schedule, or lack thereof, and... <laughs> I'm still salty because they they literally posted on social media like a few weeks ago about, hey, the, the Andorians and the Vulcans are on the boat and they're coming out like next week. And I still haven't heard anything. and I don't at this point. I kind of don't care.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like you just wait and just be surprised when it eventually shows up. That's what happened to me. I just stumbled across. I was like, oh, yeah, I was waiting for these things. Yeah. So I kind of picked them up over time, and, and the expansions are about $20, $25 a piece. So it's, it's a significant investment, but thankfully I was able to break it up by just buying one expansion at a time over time. But uh, so in Doctor Who Time of the Daleks, if you're not familiar, this is a game where each player picks one doctor. Uh, that doctor gets a companion out of the deck, uh, and your goal is to stop. The Daleks from reaching Gallifrey. So you have this sort of uh, web of time in the center where uh, the Dalek ship is about two spaces behind you, and each Doctor has their own individual TARDIS. The winner of the game is the one who gets to Gallifrey first, whether that's one of the Doctors or the Daleks. It is, by letter, a competitive game, but pretty much everybody who plays it at least those people who have read about playing it play it like it's a cooperative game because it's just so difficult to defeat the daleks if you're not cooperating Um, i mean that's
0: kind of the way i've played a few games in the past i mean my most notable one is one from that you guys covered on flip the table which is the omega virus it's technically competitive but i always want somebody to win (laughs) Right,
1: because you don't want to let the computer win, because the computer is horrible to you the whole time. (laughs) The whole time. So so if all else fails, somebody's got to win, if only to stop the computer. Um, And that is very much the case in Time of the Daleks. We found in our game that one player uh, and I were sort of teaming up to try to push the Daleks backwards, uh, while one of the other players was taking their turns to make progress and to win the game so we were effectively letting them run the table and win the game and even then it came within a turn or two of a total defeat versus them winning Uh, the other player who was playing did not even get off the starting block they made no game progress because we were just focusing on trying to push the Daleks backwards. And yet it still felt like a rewarding experience because we kind of went into the game with that spirit. I think if you went into it expecting to play a competitive game and had the same experience, uh, you'd probably be pretty frustrated if you played two and a half hours and did not leave the starting space.
0: Yeah, that is generally less fun.
1: (laughs) Generally, yes. But, I mean, I am well-documented a huge Doctor Who fan from a very young age, And uh, this game speaks to me probably in the same way that Firefly, uh, also by Force 9, speaks to a lot of people. I think these two games live in kind of the same zone because they're very sort of experience-driven. They're not really so much about building an engine as it is about just seeing what the next card is going to reveal or the next tile or uh, the next challenge is going to be. You do get better as the game goes, but there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of randomness. Um, and you have to be kind of willing to go into it knowing that once in a while the game can just not fall in your favor and you can be behind the eight ball from the very beginning. And and in at times I've played this game with some groups and they have had that experience and never wanted to play again. So I think, you know, fair warning that that is something that can happen in this game with so much dice rolling. But I was a big fan of the expansions because they added a ton of variety to the game. We played, again, two and a half hours with all the expansions in and we still got through two-thirds of the tiles and cards and things. So you can imagine, with just the base game, you probably have to reshuffle a couple of times and you start seeing the same things over and over again. So it definitely feels much fuller uh, and much more complete with the expansions in it. I will say that the miniatures are are a little bit fragile. Before the game, one of the players was playing uh, Christopher Eccleston and was putting the purple base onto that figure and it snapped off at the ankles. Oh, no! And unfortunately... uh, I own a copy of the Doctor Who uh, electronic time traveling game, and happen to have a purple Christopher Eccleston pawn standing by. So I just grabbed that. <laughs>
0: oh, and you know, put like you do set. as a normal person, just have right that. as a regular
1: human being who exists in this world and does regular things. I had a purple Christopher Eccleston pawn ready to go. So Christopher Eccleston will now always be purple in our Doctor Who game. But that is something to watch out for because you do need to. The game asks you to put these rubber things on the bases, and you have to give it a little bit of juice. In order to get the thing on there and my friend gave it a little too much and it broke she felt terrible but just the feel of them you can kind of tell that that was a possibility so be forewarned uh the miniatures look nice but I would almost recommend just going with colored pawns because switching those miniatures out mid-game at three feet of distance you can't really tell what they look like anyway so you might as well just go with colors
0: that makes sense so who who would you say that this game is best geared toward is it Really, like, mostly just for people who really love Doctor Who? Or are there people who maybe aren't as familiar with the IP who could get some enjoyment out of it as well? I think if you're not as familiar with the IP,
1: but like games like Elder Sign, uh, then this will be in your wheelhouse. Because it is about knowing that you're going in and rolling dice and getting a lot of luck, but knowing that you can do some things to mitigate your luck or give yourself a better chance, like changing out for different colored dice that are weighted a little bit differently. I will say that Die Hard Doctor Who hands are probably going to have more fun, and it's a significant investment to get this much stuff. So if you are as in love with the Doctor Who universe as I am, and you like highly thematic games, then this one's going to be a great investment. If you're looking for more of an engine-building game or something without a lot of luck, this one might not be for you.
0: Okay, very cool. I actually had a similar experience recently playing Trogdor, the board game, where I was like, the game is not horrible by any means, but there's more there for people who are fans of the IP.
1: Absolutely. And that's okay. Uh, not every game is for every person. And uh, if you have a group of people who are going to be able to enjoy that around you, then, then it's a great investment.
0: Awesome. Well, I recently was at the local board game cafe here in Las Vegas that I love, Meepleville, which is run by my friend Tim, who also helps me run the convention here in town. So all my favorite things. And I saw on their table of recently added to the library games, I saw a copy of Ship Shape, which is a game by Rob Davio that came out this year, 2019, from Calliope Games. And I had heard a little bit of buzz about this one on a couple of different podcasts but not like a ton of buzz about it and it interested me based on the way people had described it so in ship shape all of the players have a ship with a hold in it and a hand of cards that are numbered from i think one to like ten Um, and those cards are your ability to bid to get cargo to put into your hold the cargo Are these little square tiles that have a grid of nine on them but not the entire tile is solid there are there are holes in that grid um, strategically placed and items on other parts of the grid so in theory when you pick up a tile and put it into your hold and then you put another tile on top of it all of the holds or all of the tiles are shaped differently. So you'll be able to look down and see different things in your hold based on where the holes on the topmost tiles are. So in theory, you might have something very valuable on your bottom tile, but the next tile you place might cover it up or it might still be revealed. And you end up with this three dimensional block of tiles where when you look down, you can only see a maximum of nine things in there, but they might be good or they might be bad. When you bid, um, you put down your cards simultaneously, and then reveal them. And the highest value card gets to choose which, or gets to pick the top tile from the stack. What's interesting about this is if you bid the same number as another player, ties actually go down to the next lowest value bid. So if two players bid their ten, and another player bid their nine, the person with the nine would actually choose their get their tile first, and you add the tiles to your hold. And then at the end of the round, when you have, I believe, three tiles in your hold on top of your base for the uh, round, you look down and see what you score. There's gold, there's cannons, there's contraband, which can be bad if you have the most of it. And you then get coins and points are the coins, basically. Um, And you play three rounds. It's really fundamentally simple to play, but very fun. And I really, I'm a sucker for a gimmick in a game i know some people like to look at games like this and be like oh that's just a gimmick it's whatever you don't really... have to
1: convince me that gimmicks are wonderful
0: gimmicks are great <laughs> like they make things more <laughs> enjoyable in ways that it's really hard to describe sometimes it's just like that visceral feeling of doing something you don't usually do and in this case like it even says in the rule book so when you make the stack of uh, tiles in the middle of the table that you're going to be taking from after you bid it says that you are allowed to stand up from your seated position to look into the stack but you're not allowed to move around the table so based on where you're located at the table when you lean over and look at like the stack of tiles you'll have more information than or you'll have different information than the other players because when you look down, you might not... Wow. Yeah, like it's interesting because you might want... You might not want that top tile, let's say. Like whatever's on it's not interesting to you or doesn't fit in with the way your hold is shaping up. But you can see on that second tile that there's, you know, like a really valuable... Like there's nine coins on it. You're like, okay, I want the second one. But then you have to bid strategically to try and get second. So it's really interesting, even though the mechanics are quite simple to begin with it was a delight I really enjoyed this one honestly it feels like a what could be a really neat gateway game honestly like the rules are easy enough to learn it's e- definitely easy to teach and it goes by really quickly the three rounds are lightning fast So Rob Davio, I mean, what do you have to say about him? He's a great designer. He's designed things both light and complex that are all lovely. And this one for me is a huge win. I really like it a lot. Uh, I have not added it to my collection yet, but that's just because I'm in the midst of reorganizing my entire house and board game collection and I'm trying (laughs) to be responsible. So uh, I think Ship Shape from Rob Davio and Calliope Games is a great game. I highly recommend it if you're looking for something that is approachable, yet really interesting and does something a little bit different than a lot of other games in the same space. Well,
1: it's just unbelievable that they managed to make the literal position that you're sitting at the table a mechanism in the game where the actual angle at which you look at other people's stuff matters which I never would have thought of in a million years right and it sounds it sounds like it feels like kind of a trick-shaking game right like if you you play your higher cards and you have to kind of time that out am I understanding that right or yeah
0: so um you have a total I think it's 10 cards in your hand and if you tie you rebid in the same round with the person you Mm -hmm. tied with or people you tied with with. So you can technically run through all of your cards before the game ends if you ever tie. And once you've gotten down to one card, you get to pick up the rest of your cards. So it actually could be strategic to intentionally tie with people to try and run your hand down more quickly and pick up your cards again. So there's like...
1: Okay, that's out of control. There's a whole bunch
0: of interesting (laughs) nuance here that I, I honestly think people might not realize right away. But when I played it, I was just like, there's so much interesting design here. Rob Davio, what you've just done it again, man. Like... (laughs)
1: Man, first Monopoly Tropical Tycoon, and then this. Wow. I
0: still haven't played Tropical Tycoon, and I really want to. <laughs>
1: Ugh, for shame, for shame.
0: I know. It's not like... It's, I mean, if I could just walk into Walmart and pick up a copy, I would definitely do that.
1: <laughs> well, we'll start the uh, the change.org petition on that soon. We'll figure that out.
0: <laughs> All right. Bring it back, Walmart. Everybody wants top, Tropical Tycoon. They just don't <laughs> know it yet.
1: But yeah, Rob Davio is a, a brilliant designer. He has a way of taking those sort of classic concepts like Monopoly, but like trick-taking, and then finding some really new and fun and clever way to implement them that people haven't seen before. I mean, even with his own games, you look at Betrayal at House on the Hill and then, you know, leveling up to Betrayal Legacy, right? So he has a great talent for that, and I am not surprised whatsoever that he has found a way to reinvent trick-taking as well.
0: (laughs) Basically, yeah. (laughs) Alright, so let's hop into our thematic segment for the day. Uh, you actually suggested this topic, and I thought it was really interesting, and it is not something uh, specifically that Ambi and I have covered in the past. So, we are going to be talking about games that we, the way you described it is that we've played a hundred times. Games that we've played so often or so much that we've really lost count. And of course, this for me at least in the past few years is less true because I use the BG Stats board game tracking (laughs) app and I don't play any games a hundred times in real life. But I, I like the feel of it. It's those games that you just keep coming back to, the ones that just don't ever get old, the ones that when somebody suggests them, your answer is always just yes.
1: I think you really captured it there. It's those games that they're almost like comfort food at a certain point. And for me, Uh, These tend to be the games that I discovered early in my uh, gaming career when I had a stack of maybe, you know, five, 10 games to start with, and I was just getting into hobby board gaming. And so when you have that sort of limited pile of them, you kind of keep going back to the ones you have, but that have somehow endured now 10 years that have been kind of really active hobby gamer. And there is a list of games that I feel like I have been playing forever and would play forever. And they're not necessarily your favorite quote-unquote games, the the ones on your top five or top ten list, but they're the ones that you could play indefinitely and you'd be happy to do so.
0: I think that's a really good point, and... I, I like the comfort food analogy because I think for me, some of these games, when I don't happen to play them for a while, I like miss them in a way I don't miss other games. Like, even the games that I really love that don't fall within this category, like, the way I miss those games is different because, like, uh, I know you and I both have a love for BSG. I don't think BSG falls in this category for me. I don't think it is comfort food. And I miss playing it when I don't, but I only get to play it on average about once a year at this point. I would like to play it more than that, but once a year generally feels okay. And some of these games, if I don't play them more often, I feel like I'm kind of missing something.
1: Absolutely, and and it gets more and more difficult. The more games you get, the more experiences that are out there, but I think everybody has that list, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about ours.
0: Absolutely. So do you want to maybe give us a couple examples of games that fall within this category for you? Sure.
1: Um, I'll go ahead and and start with uh, Battlestar Galactica, since it's already on the table. It's no secret that uh, I love thematic games. And BSG was a game that I discovered shortly after Shadows over Camelot. Shadows over Camelot is the game that got me into hobby gaming as we know it today. Before that, I had played... You know, a couple of hobby games here and there, but wasn't really, really into it until that game. And BSG was like a leveled-up Shadows Over Camelot for me. And it was Professor Laserbooks who taught me BSG. Uh, We visited his apartment. We played it. It was incredibly complex. I definitely didn't get all of it, but I wanted to go back to it again and again and again. And I hadn't even seen the show yet. Oh, wow. Yeah, we played BSG. We loved it. We decided we were going to watch a couple episodes of BSG. We borrowed them from Professor Laserbooks, and we literally said, oh my God, this is exactly like the board game. (laughs) So, like...
0: Yeah, the, the base game does technically spoil one of the major plot points from season one, but it doesn't spoil anything belong, beyond that. And that's only it's only spoiling it if you're actually reading the flavor text and looking at the photos.
1: Right. But I find, even to this day, I try to get it to the table a couple times a year at least, but in the very beginning, we were playing it every single week. It was like a Saturday night tradition for us because it's the one we wanted to play. And and it was the one we had access to. And it just had all this intrigue and all this flavor and all this theme. And it kept revealing new things about itself every time that we would play, which was interesting, too. We got to understand the cards a little better. We got to understand the strategies a little better. We kind of knew enough to be dangerous those first couple of games. But after a while, we just got to know this engine so well that it became a real chess match trying to figure out what the other person was trying to do.
0: That's super fascinating. And I'm super jealous because I have never had a group to regularly play the game with. So all of my Battlestar Galactica experiences, which I've loved every single one of them, even when we've thrown in parts of the expansions that I ended up not liking, the experiences have still always been great. But they've all been, like, n- they have, none of them have been nuanced in that way because I've been playing usually with different people or at least I think there's been at least one new player in almost every game of it that I've played. So I would love to play it with an experienced group at some point.
1: It's definitely a different experience because you, you want to help that new player get on board. And that requires a certain amount of, you know, pulling back the curtain on the intrigue and the secrecy and stuff like that that happens in this game. I and mean, I've definitely heard stories about players who tried the game and did not have teachers who helped them that way. But I think it, It raises a good point, Crystal, that in order for something to hit your 100 times list, you have to have people around you who also want to play it 100 times, and that's what makes these games so rare. I can absolutely love a game and not get it to the table 100 times because the people around me just want to do something else.
0: Yeah, it's tough, especially for me, because my weekly game group that I meet with tends to be a group that really likes to play new stuff, to try new games, to play new games. And um, myself and another person, Greg, are the ones that tend to be the ones bringing games to game night. And Greg and I love to acquire games. I'm sometimes getting review copies of games and need to play new stuff for the podcast. So it's sometimes hard to get those, even those hundred play favorites, to the table. But when I do, oh gosh, it makes makes me happy.
1: Absolutely because they're just so worn into your brain, right? Like you know I'm like the back of your hand. I think of Dominion too is another one on my 100 times list where again, we we got it very early in my uh, gaming career. We learned it. It was mind-blowing at the time. Deck building games, what a concept. And it had such variety because you have 25 of these packs of cards and you only use 10 of them and you use a different 10 every time and now you're going to add an expansion and now you're going to add Five more expansions, which gives you these infinite combinations of cards to play. And our friends uh, Ben and Nicky Turner, who you might have heard on Flip the Table before, uh, if you're a listener. Ben is also my best friend from high school. I don't know if we've ever talked about that on the show. But we would visit them very frequently, and we would bring our Dominion, and that's all we would play. Like, we would make a night of just Dominion randomized sets again and again and again. Because we had so much fun exploring that space. And seeing how the different types of cards were going to interact with each other and seeing what kind of a new game was going to happen the next time we played it. And along the way, we started to get better at figuring out, oh, so you should probably trash a lot of cards and get rid of your base cards. And now these particular cards are really good. If they come up, you should try to grab those. And so Dominion is another example of a game that is still on my 100 times list uh, because we played it just so much in the beginning.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. I played Dominion, gosh, a number of years ago. I think when I started getting into the hobby proper, it hadn't come out yet. Dominion came out in 2010, right? Is that correct? Something
1: like that. I I got married in 11, and it came out a little bit before that, so I think you're
0: right. Um, And I I don't remember when I played it for the first time. It was definitely a few years ago at least, but I I love thematic games so much, and Dominion just didn't scratch that itch for me and so i bounced off of it but i later i think i realized that like deck building for me is just not one of my favorite mechanics and so because there was nothing else there like the deck building in that game is brilliant it really is great but since deck building isn't my favorite i think that's why but honestly i've been considering going back to it and trying to give it another chance because i've grown and changed a lot As a gamer, and I found deck builders that I really do like since then. So I do, I want to give Dominion another shake at some point.
1: And I mean, that's the biggest uh, criticism of it, right? Is is this pretty themeless. It's pretty mechanical.
0: Yeah, but I like other things that are themeless. So I can't even really use that as an excuse. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny because that got me into Ascension, which is also on my 100 plays list. And DC Comics deck building game, which is also, also on my 100 plays list. So I think I just might have fallen in love with deck building as well. And, and I think the experiences with Dominion made it easier to transition into those other games with similar mechanisms, but maybe a little bit of a different way to play.
0: Okay. Um, did you, uh, do you play the Legendary or Legendary Encounters games at all?
1: I did play Legendary for a while and I really enjoyed it. And then I got the villains version and hastily blended it with my base version and didn't much care for that combination because some of the keywords are like the same but different. Um, and then laziness got to me, and I never separated it out and have not played it since. Uh, the same thing happened to me with Thunderstone, yet another deck-building game. Uh, we played Epic Thunderstone one night, where you just mix all the cards together, and I was really tired and I just didn't feel like sorting I was like, oh, I'll just deal with this in the morning. And I threw them back in the box, never unsorted them, oh. and traded it away to somebody a couple years later, and they got a horrifically unsorted thunderstone <laughs> for me it was a nightmare in that box
0: oh my gosh yeah no i i am definitely guilty of that like when you're tired at the end of game night you're like well i'll just do this later and you never do it later
1: <laughs> i just break out the squeegee and just sweep it into the box and i just figure it i out.
0: mean I uh, gosh bless my friends in my game group because especially like my friend kathy is really like no no no! i'll help you We'll we'll get it right now and i'm like she knows me she knows that if we don't do it now we're not gonna do it <laughs> Oh my gosh. So uh I guess I should name a couple games off of my list, although this probably none of they won't surprise people. Obviously the number one for me is Strike, which we t- we've talked about it endlessly on the podcast, and I've only known of Strike's existence now for what? Like probably three or four years, but it is definitely my most played game, and it is technically, technically themeless, but <laughs> I I feel like,
1: uh, I respect your incorrect uh, assessment of that. Because it's uh, definitely about gladiators fighting in an arena. It
0: very much is. Hashtag gladiators in an arena is what it is. But I I also can respect that that's not what it looks like to some people. (laughs) Uh, But I think for me, the games that fall into my, this list, the hundred plays, the, you know, never get old games. Often for me, they tend to be shorter They tend to be really approachable and easy to teach. There are games like Battlestar Galactica that I could see ending up on this list for me because I love them so much. But for me and my environment and my game group... I end up being the one teaching games a lot, and if a game isn't easy to teach, it's just not going to hit the table as often, because we have new people coming to game night all the time, I am bringing games, I am teaching games, and the ones that I tend to break out more often than not with new people are games like Strike, because it is easy to teach, and it's quick, and it also gives people, we have people that show up at different times for game night, and so it's... Sometimes that moment where you're like, "Ooh, do we really want to start a two-player or a two-hour game right now when we know two more people are showing up in 30 minutes?" So the shorter games tend to work better for that. Uh, another one that over the past few years has kind of become that for me is King Domino. Uh, and it was funny. I actually hadn't played it in a while until recently. And I played it again. And I had that feeling of, oh, man, this is, yeah, comfort food. Like, just so... like. Why haven't I been playing this every day of my life since the last time, time I played it, right? Every time I break out King Domino, I love it. I really do. And then a newer game that is, I think, falling into this category for me is Just One, which I... Just adore. (laughs) I am
1: fascinated by the idea of that game. I've heard some people describe it, and it sounds like something that I would absolutely love to play.
0: It is awesome. I love it so much. And some friends online started uh, playing a variant of it called Just Two, where you (laughs) have two different clues going at the same time, and people are giving words based on either one of those things. And it makes it more difficult, technically, but you can also play with more people now. And so when I purchased Just One, I purchased two copies of Just One right off the get-go, just based on my friends (laughs) talking about it. I was like, I clearly need two of these. So... These lighter, the smaller, approachable games are kind of that that comfort food for me. And it is funny because my game group tends to think that I only like shorter, quick, easier games sometimes. Like, I've had a couple people say, like, that's my favorite kind of game. And that's not actually true. The games that are at the top of my top hundred list are long and intense and much more... In depth than these types of games, but they're just not the ones that I'm playing on a Thursday evening after I've been at work for eight hours, so <laughs> they tend to see the the smaller stuff more often, and I think that is kind of one of the downsides of me being the hostess at these events is I don't want to get myself involved in something lengthy uh, because then it takes away from my ability to host so
1: yeah, you mentioned something interesting too earlier, where you know we've talked about games that we've played with the same group a hundred times, but uh, you're absolutely right that sometimes you can play a game a hundred times because you want to show it to everybody you know. Oh and yeah, <laughs> conventions or the weekly game night where people are, are in and out. Like, just I've had that experience with uh, games, particularly with flip the table games that have just this sort of novelty where I want to watch people have this experience, and you know I. Don't necessarily need to have this experience myself over and over again, but I want to watch what people, how people react when they play Heartthrob, when they play the McDonald's game, when they play just something weird and wacky and out there. It's, it's that games that motivate you to show it to as many people as you can, and that can rack up a lot of plays.
0: I uh, have taught the McDonald's game to people at conventions, and it is my absolute favorite to have people sit down and be like, oh yeah, cheesy game, whatever, like, (laughs) like they're, they're not, not into it, but they're definitely not necessarily excited about it. And seeing that moment where like we're assembling the orders and they're like, holy cow, this is actually a game.
1: (laughs) I know it's magic.
0: That moment of realization.
1: Right. And, uh, and, and there are games like that on, on my list, which, uh, are like that. I mentioned a couple already, the game TV Scrabble which is the board game based on the television game show based on the board game, (laughs) sort of (laughs) board game inception. I love showing that to people because it's got the red lens technology and it's got these weird crossword clues in it. I'm not even going to try to describe it. You can go back to Flip the Table and listen to our full review for that. But that's an example of one that I just want to show everybody. Chroma Cubes by uh, Chip Bovee is a game that falls into that category for me and also a game that I could just play 100 times anyway. Uh, Because it's just so simple and neat and perfect. That one's interesting to me too because I'm playing the first generation version of that. He iterated it a bunch of times after I got my hands on it and I never learned any of the newer rules. I just kept playing Gen 1 Chroma Cubes with everybody I knew because I felt like it was so brilliant.
0: I've heard about Chroma Cubes over the years, and I've never gotten a chance to play it, and I definitely want to at some point. And in case our listeners uh, didn't make the connection, Chip Ove is who does our alliteration puzzles that we do at the end of the episodes, although I believe he's stepping away from all of his fun Twitter accounts here in the near future. Um, I think he just announced that recently, but again, this episode isn't coming out for a little while, so there might be a weird little time sink here. But uh, yeah, Chip, Chip does some really cool stuff, and he's got a, a very, like... A puzzly mind isn't the right term, but like a puzzle focused mind like he's really good at creating interesting things,
1: like I have no idea. I wish I could uh get into that guy's head for one day. I've had many conversations with him, and it's fascinating to see the things that he comes up with and it's always something completely different than the last thing that he did so uh, i'm I'm confident he'll have something else going on very soon.
0: oh I'm yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: So I can't let a uh, conversation about games I've played a hundred times without mentioning the 12 Doctors.
0: Okay, and it's, yeah, like, your Doctor Who is a big IP for you, obviously, and so this, this game is one that you've talked about your love of over the years, for sure.
1: Yes, um, and for those not familiar, this is not a published game. It's by uh, Mark Chaplin. Uh, if you've ever played the game Invaders you have played something pretty close to the 12 Doctors. It's the same mechanisms, it's a lot of the same cards even, but a different IP, or if you played Revolver by Mark Chaplin as well. But the best way I can describe it without getting into a full review here is imagine two perfectly tuned Magic the Gathering decks that are built to play against each other, each one having three or four different ways to win the game, and having that in a box in this perfect little package tied in with a theme that you're absolutely in love with. And that is the 12 Doctors for me. And I think I've managed to play it so many times uh, because my wife and I, this is kind of the go-to game for us now and has been for many, many years. And I think what what has drawn me to it is not only just the social connection of, of playing with her because it's something that we both enjoy very, very much, but every time we play it, we discover new things about it We see new interactions between cards. It's still revealing itself to us to this day. And that's fascinating to me. Um, and, And that's one of the reasons why I think it's good to try to revisit some of your favorite games more often so you can see more of those corner cases. So you can see more of the things that the game can do that it's not necessarily gonna do every time.
0: Well, and it's not even that you'll find new things about the game, but we all over time change as gamers. And so the place from which we're coming at different games will change over time as well. And so I think I've learned new things about myself and the games when I've come back to them after some amount of time has passed.
1: So I guess that, that leaves me with a question for you, Crystal. Is is there a game on your list which doesn't necessarily pass quote-unquote gamer muster today, but your either knowledge of the game or your emotional connection to it or whatever still makes it one of those 100 times games for you
0: i mean what's funny is there uh, the those flip the table style games that have are, are kind of becoming that for me i think i We've, we've joked in the past that, uh, like, I, when Flip the Table ended, that I would take up the mantle and become Moderator Crystal, and or in and, and Doctor Who style, I would be the next <laughs> moderator. I think, I don't think it's we're ever going to actually make it happen, but you and I actually discussed filming, like, something from afar, <laughs> <laughs> where you, I would become Moderator Crystal. Um, but those, those Flip the Table... There's a reason that you all's podcast was so magical, and that is that you all found the joy that existed in games that time had forgotten for the most part. And I think I latched onto that joy. I love nostalgia. I love cheese. I love gimmicks and. The those types of games really just squarely fit into my wheelhouse, and I was able to discover a whole bunch of them because of your all's show. And now those are the games for me that, like, I always want to play the McDonald's game. But here's my question for you. How, oh, wow.
1: Okay. How nice do you dodge do you, there, but okay. Go no, ahead.
0: How do you travel with all these games? The boards um. are unwieldy. The components are old and a little more fragile. I honestly, like, when I went to Gen Con, wanted to bring some of these games with me and tried to package a bunch of them up into a single box. And I was like, oh, let's grab the Babysitter's Club game box because that one's big. Nope, McDonald's board doesn't fit in that. Well, let's grab the McDonald's game box. Nope, the Babysitter's Club one is too long for that. So, like, I can't consolidate and I don't have room to put all these fragile boxes in my luggage and I need your help, Chris. Tell me, please. How do I do this?
1: Yeah, so there's three solutions to this. Number one is just don't go to conventions where uh, you have to get on a plane. Most of the time, that's my solution. I maybe go to an out-of-state and on an airplane convention once every three four years.
0: Ah, see, and that's my problem. All of Almost all of my conventions, aside from Dice Tower West, are on a plane, so...
1: Right. So number two possible solution, which is what we did at Dice Tower Con a few years ago when we did our live show, is I checked a bag... That was a giant, like, clothing bag. I filled it with bubble wrap and oddly shaped games. Okay. And so it was just like, I packed all my clothes, rolled really tightly into a carry-on bag, and then the board games went into the checked bag with a lot of bubble wrap, and I just trusted that the airplane gods would prevent them from getting lost or whatever. Number three is to be flip-flory and create travel versions of your ancient board games with an exacto (laughs) knife. He has um, a travel McDonald's game and a travel heartthrob where he cut the box down to a quarter size, put slashes in the game board so that it would fold, and somehow compressed it down so that it was a mini travel size version of that game. Wow. By being brave enough to take a razor to those games.
0: I don't know that's if you do that.
1: <laughs> I could not do that, like- but I know somebody who can, and so that's useful if you're trying to do <laughs> these sort of things
0: when um, flip found out that i had gotten a copy of the mcdonald's game where the interior components were still in their plastic he nearly lost his mind
1: i think he messaged me about it too and i nearly lost my mind
0: <laughs> i was like the outside is not in shrink but everything inside is still in plastic <laughs> it was a delight
1: Absolutely. He actually managed to get his hand on an unpunched McDonald's game and brought it to my house specifically so that I could share in the punching with him. It was very kind. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, that's what friends are for, man. Get some ancient board games and let you punch them.
0: (laughs) Punching McDonald's games. Yeah. Trying to get that 1970s authentic smell out of the box.
1: (laughs) Like fried apple pies and maybe a little bit of lead. Who knows? Fried,
0: Fried in beef tallow, no less, back then.
1: Oh, yeah. The apple pies
0: were definitely not vegetarian-friendly, which is an interesting thing (laughs) to know. (laughs) All right. Well, we've definitely tangented here, but uh, do you have any final thoughts about those 100-play games that you want to share? Like, what what you get out of those games or how they have been a part of your gaming career, so to speak?
1: I think with these games that have played 100 times... I found myself reconnecting with them recently. Since I took a step back from being really actively in board game media, I felt less of a need to keep up with the Joneses per se and, and to really speak the language to you know people in the gaming public and, and other podcasters. I'm not even sure why I really felt that need in the first place considering the show that I did, but I just kind of felt like I needed to stay on top of things. So I made more of an active effort to play new games and try new things. And what I found is that by kind of going back to those experiences, it it feels like it kind of reconnected me with gaming a little bit to remember the things that I loved about those games, to relive some of the memories created by those games. And I can tell you, uh, I think one of the questions on our our rundown was, do you have a hard time letting go of games that you used to love? And I say, I don't because I don't. I will hang on to a game. If I have one really good memory with a game, I will hang on to it basically forever forever. And I'm glad that I did, because if I had not, I don't think I would have gone back and rediscovered games like Dominion, Battlestar Galactica, which we had a little bit of a drought for a while on that. And so I guess I would encourage listeners, uh, as much as there are amazing new experiences coming out all the time, reconnect with your old games. Figure out what your old favorites are and make sure, even once or twice a year, you get them back to the table and remind yourself why you got into it in the first place.
0: I think that's a really good piece of advice. Yes, listeners, you, in the next month or so, pull one of those games off the shelf that you used to truly love, that you haven't played in a while, and rediscover the joy that you once knew and that you probably still feel and just weren't aware of maybe right this moment. Like, get some fun awesome comfort food games to the table and then tweet at us and tell us about it because I would love to hear about it and I wanna know what your all's games are that you could play a hundred times, that you've lost count, that they're just comfort food, that they're just wonderful. Tell us about them. I wanna know what games those are because guess what? I might want to try some of them if I haven't yet. Because if they're comfort food for somebody else, you know, like if you hear about a comfort food dish, actual food, if somebody else loves it that much, I want to try it. So give us uh, all the info, Twitter, Facebook, the Board Game Geek Guild, wherever you tend to interact with us. And we would love to hear from you. Yeah. Don't forget to tag me too. (laughs) Yes, tag Chris. So Chris, before we get to uh, end of the episode stuff, tell people where they can currently find you on the interwebs.
1: Absolutely. A few good places to find me. The complete series of Flip the Table, a podcast about cheesy, weird, and obscure board games, is available at tableflipsu.com.
0: Ding, ding, ding. Ah!
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's still there. Uh, we still throw things into the feed once in a while. There may be some future shenanigans happening.
0: Who knows? Future shenanigans? Oh. Future I'm...
1: shenanigans. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, watch this space. Tableflipsu.com. You can find me on Twitter at tableflipsu. You can shoot me an email if you still use that. Contactflipthetable at gmail.com. And my new game, Roll Estate, a game I actually designed from start to finish, is now available at PNPRcade.com. So just look for Roll Estate, R-O-L-L, like rolling dice. Um, It's a game that combines some of these classic games that you may be familiar with in a new and fun and fresh way.
0: That's super exciting! (music) For this week's etymology segment, and in honor of a game that Chris absolutely loves, we're going to look at the origins of the word monopoly. The English word monopoly, meaning exclusive control of a commodity or trade, originated in the 1530s and comes from the Latin word monopolium, which can be traced back to the Greek monopolion, which meant right of exclusive sale. So the definition possession of anything to the exclusion of others was first used in the 1640s, where the sense of the word meaning a company or corporation which enjoys a monopoly wasn't formally used until 1871. The board game Monopoly was originally developed by Elizabeth Maggie Maggie, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, and was called the Landlord's Game. But throughout the 20th century, another person had been given, given sole credit for the game's design. In recent past, Maggie has gotten more credit for the game that would eventually turn into the cultural phenomenon that we know today. As a fun little bonus fact, the phrase Monopoly money, meaning unreal currency, had its first use noted in 1959, which was six years after the board game originally released.
1: Wow. So uh, so people have been uh, talking about Monopoly money uh, for a long time, a, and rightly so.
0: For a really long time. <laughs>
1: All right, number one, uh, the dark blue properties do not buy them at face value. Uh, They cost about half your starting money. Always put them up for auction and try to get them for 50% or less of the face value so you can liquidate later. They're also too expensive to uh, upgrade. Number two, the orange properties are your friend. They're the most statistically landed on. Number three, the light blue properties are the best return on investment. Number four, uh, only build up to three houses and then sit there and choke off the house supply. Uh, number five, use the speed die. It changes the game in a very pleasant way. That's my whole speech in a nutshell.
0: I love it. And truthfully, uh, so Amby actually recently played Monopoly. Uh, and I was... <gasps> yeah. She did, and she liked it. She was like, yeah, it was fine. Like, everybody hates on Monopoly because I think people think it's cool to hate on Monopoly. I have not played it in a long time and really, truly do want to play it again.
1: Well, anything could happen thanks to the magic of the internet. And you've just admitted it in recorded format, so...
0: That's totally true. And for the record, I know that you and I are not going to be playing games together nonstop for the entire time that I'm in Philadelphia, but I am going to be in Philadelphia for PAX Unplugged, and we are going to see each other. And this will be the first time you and I have ever met in person, and I cannot tell you I know, I'm so excited! (laughs) (laughs) Like, if, if anybody were to ask, like... I think most people would assume that you and I have been in a room together at some point. (laughs) And that is not the case at all. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, but you know, the
1: internet brings people together and that's why it's a, a wonderful thing.
0: It is. I consider you a very good friend, even if we've never technically been in the same room together.
1: I consider you a great friend as well.
0: Thanks for having me on your
1: podcast.
0: I mean, come on. You're the first guest host of our podcast ever. Like we've had, like, we've never actually replaced... A current host with somebody else before, so this is uh this is the first, and you're it.
1: Well, nobody can replace uh, Ambi at all. It is an honor and a privilege to sit in this chair for this episode. I want to thank you so much for inviting me on and letting me kind of poke my head out into the internet for my uh, once or twice a year visit to uh, to the gaming community. And congratulations on uh, your all of your success over the years. And I'm looking forward uh, to catching up with you at PAX U.
0: Awesome, sounds great. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, boardgameblitz.com, for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. Did you miss the Kickstarter campaign for After the Empire? Have no fear. You can still pre-order the game directly by visiting grayfoxgames.com today. Gray Fox Games. Quality games. Cleverly crafted. If you're enjoying the show, you can rate and review us on your podcast provider or consider becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can unlock access to unedited episodes and our private Slack channel, which lets you chat with us and our other Blitzketeers directly. Head to patreon.com boardgameblitz to become a patron today. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Boardgame Game Blitz is part of the Dice Tower Network. Until next time!
1: Doo doo
0: Get out the games bring your friends it's fun to lose and also win we're never bored we're all just nerds we'll play the games that are preferred bye everyone bye Monopoly on that sounded not Greek at all, so that pronunciation probably very inaccurate. Monopolyon! Uh, <laughs> it literally sounded French. I don't have an ho, accent ho. over one of the letters, and who knows? Uh, get which the baguette
1: de uh, <laughs> <the Monopolion. laughs>
0: Board Game Blitz is pro- part of the. <laughs> dang it, dang it, I was so close! Yeah. Board Game Blitz. It's alliteration puzzle time, everyone. Last episode, we asked you to retheme a game where you have to get people to guess things using different methods for primates who are experiencing a lot of extreme emotions. I will admit this one was difficult, a little bit weird and wordy, but what answer were we looking for there, Chris?
1: We were looking for moody monkey monikers.
0: (laughs) And that's just funny to think about. I'm picturing a group of emotional monkeys playing monikers together, and it's just giving me a lot of joy.
1: (laughs) And, by the way, that's 3Ms. 3M is the publisher of Quinto from 1964, Quinto is on my list of games I've played a hundred times. Boom. Tied bonus, it all together.
0: Bonus info. I love it. All right. So this episode, we are asking you to retheme a game about naval war for animals with blue rear ends who keep opening and closing their eyes. Good luck, everyone.